Just off the coast of New Jersey, one morning in November of 1923, a gunfight broke out between two ships just at the border of international waters. One boat was a U.S. Coast Guard cutter called the Seneca. The other was a vessel registered in Great Britain, far across the Atlantic Ocean. That ship was called the Tomoka. The Tomoka was not, in actuality, a British vessel. It trolled the Atlantic coast throughout the Prohibition era, but its registration as a British ship was a legal loophole intended to protect the boat and its illegal activities in this era. When the Tomoka was ordered to return to the coast in order to be inspected, it instead turned tail and rushed out to sea across the border into international waters. The Coast Guard, however, were done toying with the ship. Their orders were clear. Quote, the Seneca was ordered to bring Tomoka in or sink her. End quote. Shortly thereafter, violence would break out between the two boats, and the resulting events would change the world of rum running forever. When Prohibition began in America with the passing of the 18th Amendment in October of 1919, the sale and distribution of alcohol was legally ended for a time. I doubt that the congressmen of the 66th United States Congress considered for a moment that what would soon follow was not a moral war. They called it the quote-unquote noble experiment, after all. But rather, it was a war that launched organized crime to new heights, created new bosses in the criminal underground, and effectively started a smuggling war on America's coast. But shortly after Prohibition went into effect, the illegal business of creating and selling the illegal goods became an immediate industry for those who were willing to take the risk. But as the alcohol-selling criminal enterprises got up and running, the United States Coast Guard was prepared to go to war to uphold the law. Smuggling was what they were founded to prevent, and now, 130 years after their creation, the Coast Guard had a new enemy. Rum runners. The Coast Guard dates back to 1790 in those early days of the United States when the very first Congress enacted their formation. It was recommended by the Secretary of the Treasury, one Alexander Hamilton. He suggested that a service be created to enforce custom laws, goods going in and out of the new country. You may remember the lyric from the second act of Hamilton, referring to Hamilton as the creator of the Coast Guard. I always wondered about that brief mention, and it is true, Aaron Burr sang it. Hamilton could see that the new country, out on its own, far from its European roots, was struggling to survive in the first decade of its existence. Hamilton suggested that if the country's economy was to survive, they'd need to tax goods coming into the country from other countries. That's what's known as tariffs. But those tariffs had to be enforced, so Congress created a fleet of ships, 10 cutters who would quickly hunt down any approaching ship to ensure that the tariffs were upheld. For a century or so, the cutters did their job effectively, known as the Revenue Cutter Service, carving through the water and engaging in occasional spats with other countries' ships, keeping the tariffs and trade laws in place, and even hunting down pirates along the coast. A member of the Revenue Cutter Service was actually the first ship to fire maritime shots during the battle at Fort Sumter, which launched the American Civil War. In 1915, however, the Revenue Cutter Service combined with the incredibly named and, and very interesting and maybe most perfectly named life-saving service. Together, they became the U.S. Coast Guard. But by the time rum running became the primary battleground of prohibition in the 1920s, the Coast Guard found themselves heavily outmatched. Think of how many waterways there are in the United States. Hidden bays and rivers, coastlines that wind and stretch, vast stretches of beach to tuck into, a harbor to hide in, and the Coast Guard had to keep an eye on all of it. This was not 1790 when 13 colonies were being watched by 10 cutters keeping an eye on trade ships. This was the whole 
eastern seaboard, and the Coast Guard Commandant William Reynolds admitted at the time that it was unlikely they'd be able to stop much rum running at their current rate. The Commandant requested an increase of funds in 1923 to get more boats on the water and more men to pilot them. Old Navy ships were refurbished and painted as Coast Guard ships, and by the mid-1920s, a whole new fleet of Coast Guard boats were doing what the Coast Guard predecessor did over a century earlier, hunting down smugglers. For the first years of the 1920s, the Rum Runners ran roughshod over the Coast Guard's enforcement of the 18th Amendment, but by 1923, the tide was turning, and as two ships exchanged gunfire off the coast of New Jersey that fine morning, a Coast Guard vessel and a bootlegging boat. An icon, a leader of the rum runner industry, would soon find his career at an end. His name was Bill McCoy, the gentleman rum runner, who made a name for himself as one of the most prolific rum runners, from Rum Row in New Jersey, to the shores of Canada, all the way down to the liquor-addled shores of Florida. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the real McCoy, the gentleman rum runner, how Florida's favorite bootlegger created the heart of the prohibition business, how the Coast Guard hunted him down, and how a name can outlive a lifetime. It's back-to-back bills to start this season, a bill-to-bill beginning, if you will. Buffalo Bill last week, Bill McCoy this week. But I always like talking about a little crime around Valentine's Day. We did Al Capone a couple years ago. Last year, we talked about the attempted assassination on FDR, and it only felt appropriate that this year we talk about my favorite character from Prohibition, Bill McCoy, whose life was fascinating from its very beginning all the way to that faded day in international waters when gunfire would spray out and Bill's tenure as the quote-unquote honest lawbreaker came to an end. To begin, let's meet our guest this week, Claire White from the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. We visited with the Mob Museum two years ago for the Valentine's Day episode about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. We talked about Al Capone. Well, I was very glad to have them back on the show this week. So here is Claire White. My name is Claire White, and I am the Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am responsible for our educational programs, things that happen on-site, as well as out in the community for all ages, um, as well as doing a lot of research for our exhibits and programs. Claire White has worked in museums for nearly two decades, and her CV includes one particular museum that I was delighted to hear. My very first museum job was at the Liberace Museum. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> uh, That's amazing. When it was- yeah, when it was still open to the public, um, I started there, I, again, like almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago, and I've sort of been in museums ever since. I've worked at all types of museums. Uh, before I was here at the Mob Museum, I was at a whaling museum um, in Nantucket, which also has, you know, a rum runner <laughs> connection. So let's tarry no further. What's the rum runner connection? Well, We've talked about this before on the show, back in our episode about rum runners in Florida, but we never really got a chance to dive into who Bill McCoy actually was. What Claire notes is that rum running isn't exclusively a prohibition thing. The idea of illegally smuggling alcohol into the United States far predates the 1920s. 
I think one of the things that's most fascinating about Prohibition and, and sort of the rum runners and bootleggers uh, that run Prohibition, <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, is that they're not unique to the 1920s. In fact, rum running really starts in the colonial period in the United States around the same time that we're dealing with piracy um, and especially into the first few uh, presidential uh, sort of terms, uh, Thomas Jefferson was always having to deal with pirates and rum runners and privateers and, and they went by many different names but I think it's wild to think that when we think of of rum running and bootlegging today, I think most people are like, oh, it just starts during Prohibition. It makes sense because liquor's just suddenly outlawed in 1920. Um, but those things actually have a history that expands beyond that period. And particular, I think, to Florida, um, the the interesting connection is, you know, I, it it was rum in the beginning. I mean, by prohibition, they're they're rum running a lot of things that are not just Caribbean rum, but before prohibition, that's it. I mean, you're not you're not smuggling in illegal scotch. You're making bourbon in the United States. It's not really a a concern. Rum was the main drink in the Caribbean when it came to these early days and in Prohibition. The colonizers that arrived to the Caribbean islands, especially Cuba and Puerto Rico, they, they grew sugar, which was being grown across the islands, across the sea. Sugar was being grown throughout this region on plantations at one point and then onto farms after slavery was ended. That sugar would become the chief ingredient in creating rum, which went through various forms and had various names, including probably the best name. It was at one time called Kill Devil, which is a phenomenal name. No offense to rum, but Kill Devil sounds pretty good. As it started to spread as a drink popular on the islands, it began to spread to the pirates as well. Before Prohibition, and smugglers would, would bring rum around and make it a very prolific drink in this region of our Atlantic coast. Rum running, believe it or not, does predate Prohibition. As far as your actual question, I think the... the Rum running and bootlegging is is almost a foregone conclusion, and I know that the proponents of prohibition would ha hate to hear me say that and hated when people in the 1920s said that, but the reality is the 18th Amendment outlaws the manufacture, sale, and transport of alcohol. It never makes it illegal to drink. It never technically makes it illegal to buy alcohol. You just have to find someone willing to sell it to you illegally. To get you the thing, right? To, to get it to you. That's <laughs> such a funny, exactly. it's such a funny little neat niche in the middle of the law is it's fine. <laughs> you just have to get it. <laughs> exactly. And so the, one of the best ways to do that is to smuggle it over, uh, over water. Uh, the United States, as huge of a landmass as we are, most of our borders are either ocean or lake. Um, you know, other than, than our land borders to Canada and Mexico, most of the relationships that we have with other nations, with the rest of the world, is by sea. We are very lucky that we have both an Atlantic and a Pacific coast. There are... <laughs> There are very few countries, even in the Americas, that can claim that, and it it um, immediately becomes apparent, partially because of that, because of how much coastline we have, that it's going to make the most sense to smuggle alcohol in um, from nations where it is still legal. I think the other companion side of that, and I do not say this to disparage 
disparage the Coast Guard. My dad was actually in the Coast Guard, obviously many decades after Prohibition. But I do I do not mean this against the Coast Guard. But the reality is, is the Coast Guard was not prepared for this. The Coast Guard's only five years old when Prohibition starts. As I mentioned, the Coast Guard was massively unequipped for the situation ahead as rum running picked up. Claire is going to talk about this in a few minutes, but not only did the ideas of how to correctly and easily smuggle alcohol, that, that stuff already existed, but many of the guys who picked up rum running, they did it on their own boats. Boats they already knew inside and out. They knew how to take them over the waves to cut across the surface and eventually evade capture. They were familiar with their vehicles, so they were already, they had a leg up. They knew what they were doing. The Coast Guard was, pun intended, out of their depth. Before 1915, there's the Revenue Cutter Service, which is doing sort of the things that essentially wind up being what the Coast Guard does in, in regards to the law enforcement side of things. And then there's the U.S. Life Saving Service, which is literally life-saving. It has nothing to do with, um, I mean, it has, has to do with first responding, but not really law enforcement in, in the way we normally think of it. And so, you know, um, another fascinating thing is, and people are, especially today, are often surprised to hear this, um, uh, a lot of uh, members of the Coast Guard in the 1920s and 30s were not U.S. citizens. It was not a requirement. Uh, it was only a requirement that you had immigrated legally and were in the process of gaining citizenship. But to that point, we have guys in the Coast Guard in the 1920s from a lot of them are from Australia. A lot of them are from like Sweden and Norway, these countries that have a lot of seafaring traditions, but they don't care about the American laws. Are they are they going to enforce them? Sure, it's their job. But do they understand why those crazy Americans just outlawed alcohol? No, they don't. This left an opening for people who were enterprising and perhaps desperate enough to take up the task of doing the unique middleman job of selling alcohol straight from the source. Sure, there were people all over who were making their own alcohol, but if this rum running business was to work, they'd need to sell it everywhere and a variety of types of alcohol as well. Traveling by land could be tricky, so the ocean became their main means of transport. And who better than folks who already knew the boats? They were ready to sail. They had experience on the ocean. That was Bill McCoy. Bill McCoy is a former merchant sailor and he's operating out of Jacksonville. He actually had a, uh, a water taxi, a transport service before Prohibition. It's the classic story. You know, we come up with a new form of transportation and all the people who've invested in what we used to use to move around are, are out of luck. He, he runs, his business essentially is run into the ground by uh, land taxis that are sort of taking his business in, uh, in Northern Florida. And um, he's got boat boat building skills. He also has uh, incredible sailing skills. He has wonderful knowledge of essentially the whole Atlantic seaboard. And he gets an opportunity really early on in the early 20s. Um, a financier comes to him and says, you know, would you want to run rum? Would you feel comfortable running rum? And he thinks, sure, yeah, <laughs> great. I, I don't have anything else really to do. Um, and he, it, it was, I, it, it was apparent that this was going to be lucrative. Bill did everything right for a while there. 
The U.S. Naval Institute says that Bill's first ship was re-registered as a British ship, quote, since U.S. vessels still were subject to U.S. law, even when outside territorial waters, end quote. So he evaded a little legal loophole to make himself a British ship. So you couldn't capture him even if you were in international waters as an American ship. The business was working, so he took up a second ship, made his first mate the captain of the first, and the business got to work. But the boats weren't Bill's only plan. Bill also decided to test the limits of that international waterline. If they were in international waters, the laws of America don't apply, right? So that is where Rum Row comes into play, a system where boats could sell their alcohol out at sea just beyond the line of international law. That line would move, push out, and, and adapt to the ever-moving international line as the government attempted to capture them, but the Rum Runners adapted. Rum Row allowed them to do that. Believe it or not, Rum Row was literally a place, um, which I think is is for a historian is the, is so exciting because most of the time when someone asks me a question like that, it's like, no, that's just what we called it. It's not, you know, it's all sort of a, a nebulous thing. No, Rum Row truly uh, starts out as three miles out almost completely along the Atlantic uh, coast, there are ships. They're literally selling alcohol from the deck of their ships. And there are hotbeds of this. So the, the biggest rum row is off of, the, off of um, Long Island and off of New York City. And so essentially from, essentially from the tip of Long Island all the way to about Delaware, you have this very long chain. And of course, it's not every single square foot of water is, is filled they're with not, ships. They're not chained up. Little, <laughs> they're not yeah. tied to each other being like, come on down. Correct. But you have a row of these ships. There may be at, at any given time, truly, there's at least one and there may be as many as dozens at a time. Um, and then they sort of dot along the Atlantic coast. So there's areas where there's not um, any, if, if if many, if any at all. Um, but then for instance, you get down um, to Newport News in Virginia, and there's a, a big rum row there. You get down to Savannah, there's a big rum row there. You get down to Jacksonville, there's a big rum row there. Um, and it kind of goes sort of, I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I hate to... <laughs> to characterize other cities without, you know, having intimate knowledge of them, but it's it's kind of the cities you expect, like going along down the coast, the sure, ones Sure, but like are... those are the cities that were like the hubs of there being like <laughs> tourism or business or, or, or even like not necessarily mob presence, but some sort of organized crime presence. Exactly. But when, when you're saying it's an actual location, you're saying that like the main one is the one in Jersey off of New York, like off that area? Or yeah, is it really so, that there was sort of regional ones along the eastern seaboard? It kind of, it, it, it really does depend the context. Um, and, and truly, I mean, even, even looking at newspapers and media coverage from the 1920s, sometimes when someone is saying rum row, they, are, they mean big R, rum row, New York, Jersey. Um, other times they are meaning those ships that dock three miles out and are ready for you to come come purchase. 
So there was, as Claire says, Rum Row, two capital R's, Rum Row, the more official location. It ran down from that tip of Long Island all the way to the coast of New Jersey toward Delaware. But there were others throughout the eastern seaboard, including a few near Florida, that were almost exclusively dedicated to selling that Caribbean rum from our neighbors across the sea. And this idea, the, the creation of a system that allowed these rum runners to sell this alcohol beyond the international waterline, that came from Bill McCoy. So he's really the guy who comes up with this concept. He comes up with the idea that the safest way to go into this new business um, and for the most part follow the letter of the law is to stay out in international waters. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, honestly, it's sort of the opposite mentality of of the mob. They, the mentality that Bill McCoy has is, you know, I am going to do this legally. If I stay in international waters and a boat comes to me, I'm not the one breaking the law. I'm not the one that's transporting it into the United States. I've transported it to point unknown Atlantic Ocean. That's where the whole honest lawbreaker thing, that title comes from, the gentleman pirate, the gentleman rum runner. He was participating in this criminal enterprise, of course, but he did it in the most law-abiding way he possibly could while still technically breaking the law. He still was a criminal, he was still a wanted man, but he used the rules and skirted around them just enough. And that was more than just in his practice. It was more than just the creation of Rum Row. That was a part of his ethos. It, it, he had a code, right? He had a, a sense of rules that he believed in or a way to do this where he wasn't necessarily the most illegal <laughs> rum runner. The least illegal rum runner. That's Bill McCoy. But that wasn't just in the way that he got the rum to his customers. It was in the content of the alcohol that he was bringing itself. He was known for never cutting his alcohol. If he had liquor coming in from the Bahamas, if he had Caribbean rum, if he had, um, they start importing scotch and um, British Isles whiskey into up into Canada, um, specifically the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. It's a uh, French Canadian. Um, and he would go up there. Uh, he, he made sure that what he was selling was a high quality product. And, and that is another thing that over the years really does start to diminish. When you see Bill McCoy's ship, you know, even, you know, 1923, even a few years in, that you are getting unadulterated alcohol. Many of these rum runners, um, and some of them even had, like, proprietary is the wrong word but sort of their own formulas like it would be 25 percent of the real alcohol and then 10 percent grain alcohol and then you know the remainder water whatever it was they would actually have like these formulas and and he did not do that so when i when i say that i think that he did have sort of a an honor honorable streak and a, a business acumen that is a little different than some of the other rum runners i, I think that's a great example of that and that is where we get the term, the real McCoy. That's where it comes from. It means you get the real thing, the honest stuff, no cruff on the outside. Whatever it says it is, that's what it is. That is the real McCoy. Today, it's actually a brand of rum. With that, you can make the classic tropical rum drink, the Rum Runner. I think it's amazing that these terms, this is a century old. You maybe never heard of Bill McCoy until this, but I'm sure you've heard the term, the real McCoy. Well, it comes from his incredible practice of making sure when you were getting alcohol, it was the real deal, the real McCoy. Bill had a code. 
Even in his criminality, he had a sense in what he was doing that feels unique in stories from this time. But who was buying this stuff? The mob got involved in the business, of course, though Bill had nothing to do with that explicitly. He was just selling, and his clientele, well, they could be unique. So we make the clear distinction that he himself was not organized crime, as as many of the early rum runners were not. Um, but the reality is that from the beginning, there are organized crime figures that are, um, if nothing else, purchasing alcohol from these independent rum runners. Um, and in fact, that's, I think, the one part of rum row that is probably the most misunderstood is what, how, how, how different it looked from ship to ship who customers were. Um, at least in the beginning, there were people who would literally on their individual boats row out and maybe buy one case of alcohol. And, and you know, that might be for them. It might be for them and a couple neighbors. Everyone's chipped in on the cul-de-sac kind of thing. But um, for the most part, that was not what you were looking at. You weren't looking necessarily at one individual saying, hey, I'm going, I'm going to row out to rum row i'm gonna do you know i'm gonna gonna buy my one case of champagne and one case of rum and one case of scotch and anyone in the neighborhood who wants to buy some just come on over tonight um what you were really usually getting is one of two things um Especially in the later period, a lot of times the rum runners would have their own contact boats. Uh, sometimes they're called go-through boats or um, sunset sails because they would always do this at sunset or after um, after dark. Um, these contact boats would get the alcohol from the ships themselves as quickly as possible to shore. Um, and that kind of alcohol, those kinds of arrangements, it would usually go directly to organized crime because it's going to a speakeasy or it's going to a bootlegger who's selling on shore. Um, there is sort of an intermediate and that is the person who is not a mobster but is doing wholesale purchasing so is going out with their ship and maybe buying 200 cases um and that does exist and they're selling then... that from rum row to the mob at exactly their own cause got it yes so um you know it's not as cut and dry as like you're either a regular joe buying one case or you're a contact boat and you're going straight to the mob there's obviously nuances in between but you know, I think, and even in the case of Bill McCoy, as as much as he was very transparent about his business and there's court records and all of that sort of stuff, he didn't necessarily know every single person who was purchasing from him. Like, he's not the one making every single business deal. Um, and they did, as time went on, um, not just in McCoy's uh, fleet, but in general, uh, they create these very elaborate ways of ensuring that the correct customers are getting the product that they have um, so like they would tear playing cards and a contact boat might have one side of a playing card and the guy on shore has the other side and you gotta match it up if you want your cargo because um, you don't want a paper trail but you still need a receipt of some kind so torn playing cards everybody is very dramatic if we're being honest the torn playing card it's it's almost like they knew that america would be obsessed with these narratives for the decades to come and the, the stories that would surround them the characters the torn playing cards it, it's just the sort of thing you'd see in a james cagney movie a scorsese flick it became iconic instantly they're tropes for a reason they began with reality but bill mccoy's story couldn't last forever 
As I told you, his time was short on the waters. By 1923, it was over. His story has parallels with another, another rum runner, a man who was also dubbed the king of the rum runners. There were so many of those. Claire points out to me that you could search the title and find a dozen answers. So many people were called the king of the rum runners, Bill among them. But this guy was another one of these kings of the rum runners. It's James Horace Alderman, the Gulf Stream Prince. Born on Florida's Gulf Coast, Alderman was a fisherman who spent large portions of his life down in the 10,000 Islands. During Prohibition, he became a rum runner, as so many others did, with his experience on the water providing him the skills needed to survive. But, in 1927, after years of smuggling not just rum, but also immigrants into Florida, Alderman's luck ran out. The Coast Guard caught up to him, and his firefight with the Cutter in pursuit turned deadly. Two men died, a member of the Coast Guard and a member of the Secret Service. Another member on the boat would die from his injuries. He was detained, and the punishment was severe. Probably the other major Florida rum runner um, is James Alderman. Um, and he actually grew up in the 10,000 Islands um, and sort of operated... At, he, he was interesting because when he was operating as a rum runner, he was mostly going between Bimini and Miami, but then also sort of knew Tampa very well, knew the Everglades very well, knew sort of the Southwest um, side of Florida very well, which I think was very beneficial to him. Uh, James Alderman, very similar to Bill McCoy, he starts out early during Prohibition um, and in 1926, Coast Guard vessel spots him, uh, they come aboard. The difference between what happens to Alderman and McCoy, though, is night and day. Um, Alderman winds up being in a gunfire fight uh, with some of the members of the Coast Guard, he and one of his associates, uh, Robert Weech. And believe it or not, James Alderman, after he is finally arrested and put to trial, found guilty not only of smuggling, but also um, guilty of, of firing at a Coast Guard on the high seas. Um, he it becomes the only American ever uh, hanged by the Coast Guard, by a, by, you know, by a, uh, by a Coast Guard trial. He was hanged, a rare punishment for legal execution at the time, a brutal sign of what the government was willing to do to make a statement about what these rum runners were doing. It was serious, and they were taking it seriously. This is, as far as everybody knows, the only recorded hanging that ever took place, the only hanging execution that took place in a hangar, the first in Fort Lauderdale. It's a very unique instance of Alderman facing this sort of capital punishment. It was intense, to say the least, especially as we got deeper into the 1920s. Rum runners were facing the consequences. The Coast Guard was on the back foot when the 20s began, but as the years wore on, it was starting to not look so good for them. Bill and that way, perhaps, was lucky. He got out of it long before things turned even more sour. It was a morning in November of 1923 when it all caught up to Bill McCoy. By the time Bill had reached his peak alongside Rum Rose humming along the Atlantic coast, Bill also had, quote, five boats running crews of dozens of men on monthly trips to Rum Row, transporting an estimated two million bottles over his short-lived career, end quote. One move by the Coast Guard finally toppled the whole thing down. 
The Coast Guard refused to take no for an answer when they began to search his ship, and they told McCoy upon inspection in international water that there was something wrong with his papers. McCoy was hoping his British ship in international waters would keep him out of American custody, but the Coast Guard gave up playing by the rules themselves. McCoy rejected their offer of a coastal inspection, and he took off, fleeing the arrest. The Coast Guard ship, the Seneca, began firing at McCoy's ship. McCoy's men returned gunfire in kind, but the Seneca did not back down. Quote, the Seneca lobbed four shells into the water in front of McCoy's boat. End quote. A powerful enough statement. Quit running, or the boat gets the next shell. And that was it. The boat stopped fleeing, and McCoy was taken in alongside his, quote, 400 cases of whiskey, end quote, which sat below deck. He also had $16,000 on the boat, which is about a million dollars. He had a lot of whiskey and a lot of cash. He had a million bucks on him. <laughs> what a guy. Upon his arrest, McCoy stood by his narrative of the honest lawbreaker. This is what he said, quote, I have no tale of woe to tell you. I was outside the three-mile limit selling whiskey and good whiskey to anyone and everyone who wanted to buy, end quote. Nevertheless, Bill was taken in. He essentially says to the Coast Guard, he's like, look, I'm just going to go back to the Bahamas, not going to do anything. We don't want this to turn ugly. You don't want this to turn ugly. We're not even really sure exactly how many miles out to sea we are. If you just let me go back to the Bahamas, all is good. And the Coast Guard is like, nah, that's not happening. Um, and and so they they do continue to fire on him, and he he's just not going to risk his crew's life, and he's not going to risk his uh, uh, ship. So he he surrenders, um, and he does wind up. Um, going to trial he pleads guilty to smuggling he serves nine months in jail and then he moves back to florida and starts a, a boat building business his men dispersed to parts unknown claire and i discussed it a little bit it's not totally clear where bill's crew went from here perhaps they joined other crews or quit the business altogether Claire suggests that they may have joined up with the queen of rum runners, one Gertrude Lithgow, out of the Bahamas, who we will have to talk about maybe next Valentine's Day because she is a character in and of herself. But by the time Bill was properly in jail, the early era of rum running was over. The elements of organized crime had started to control much of the business in the years following Bill's arrest. To be blunt, there is a real clear divide sometime between 1925 and 27 all of the original uh, rum row guys and gals are usually either in jail out of the biz retired um, they've been bought out by mob interest it, it, it's different things but there is a major shift by the mid-20s by, by by 1927 um, between the changing uh, enforcement uh, line, like the changes in how far out the Coast Guard can catch people and the additional resources that the Coast Guard have at this point, it really does force a lot of these initial private rum runners out of out of business. And that's when it becomes more organized, like literally. More organized crime, yeah. Running. Got it. Mm -hmm. Bill lived beyond his rum runner days, a boat maker and even a whiskey seller. His brand was the real McCoy. He made his own whiskey after all that. He lived in Florida and died in Stewart on December 30th, 1948. When he was arrested, he was 48 years old. He lived to be 71. 
Plenty of rum runners, I'm sure, survived their bootlegging days, but many did not. Bill is one of the rare ones, a man who rose to the top, changed the game, and was caught, but lived his life like anyone else on the shores of Florida after all was said and done. I think it does speak to McCoy's character that even though McCoy was clearly trying to evade law enforcement, was clearly wanting to engage them, um, he he knew not to take it too far. I think he knew when to cut his losses. Um, and I think that he he was one of the few people who was willing to just say, you know what, I plead guilty. This is fine. I know he's he he didn't keep driving to the Bahamas. I mean, there are a lot of of stories of of these rum runners that yeah the reason it turns violent the reason they wind up having long sentences is because they weren't willing to just cut their losses um and honestly i mean most of the most successful mob bosses uh also have that in common um the guys who are don't wind up getting off the guys who don't wind off wind up spending you know decades in prison is usually because they're willing to say you know what yep i did break the law you're right (laughs) i surrender in an age of criminals bill mccoy starts looking like the finest of them all not because his crimes were particularly heinous or because he rose to such sharp power, but because he was a man who took a job amidst a deeply unpopular period of American history and made lemonade from lemons or rum from molasses. When all was said and done, he got to accept his mistake, pay his punishment, and live on. His name is still around, floating in the air amongst us, the real McCoy, a representation of his honesty despite his criminality. His truth in advertising, his uncut liquor, the real thing, the real McCoy. But it's just as true for the man himself. With Bill McCoy, you get what you pay for. Law-breaking, sure, but honest law-breaking. That was worth more than the price of rum. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed last week. I hope you enjoyed this week. I'm so glad to be back making this show, telling these stories. I am so excited for you to hear all the things we've got queued up for you in the next couple of weeks. Oh, man. I think I mentioned it last episode, but I went on a trip for the show. You're going to hear that in a couple weeks. I went to the Capitol. Oh, such a good time. And I discovered some really incredible stories that I'm going to be very excited to tell you about throughout this spring. So tune in next week. We're going to be talking about a very exciting chapter of Zora Neale Hurston's life. One of my favorite people to talk about. We talk about her every year and it's time to uh, bring back her story yet again. So if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Find the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod. Send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Five-star review really helps the show find new audiences and that always means a lot to me. Thank you. I have to give a massive thank you to Clara White from the Mob Museum and all the people there who helped arrange this interview. If you are ever in Nevada to go check them out, please go pay them a visit. I asked Claire to tell me a little bit about what the Mob Museum offers, and I was pretty amazed by some of the things they have. Here's Claire. 
we've got four floors of exhibits. Uh, we endeavor to tell the story of organized crime and law enforcement, mostly uh, across American history, but we also have international exhibits. Um, and, you know, we cover it all. We've got Al Capone. We've got things related to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, a lot related to Las Vegas history, um, ton on prohibition. We actually have our very own uh, working distillery where we make our own moonshine we oh, have uh yeah amazing we have a speakeasy that you can visit both as a guest to the museum and you can also just come and have a drink in our speakeasy uh we definitely recommend you check out our website themobmuseum.org and we're also on all social media channels um and in fact if you want to come visit the speakeasy and you're looking for the password to get in you can find that on our social media Next time I'm out west, I will be paying a visit to both our friends up in Cody, Wyoming, and our friends at the Mob Museum, because man, that sounds like such a good time. Thank you to Claire White and the Mob Museum. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. Alright folks, like I said, we will be back next Monday with an episode about the ever-fascinating Zora Neale Hurston. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and as Zora Neale Hurston herself said, go Gator and muddy the water. Happy Valentine's Day. I will see you next Monday. <laughs>